Hello and welcome to the Grattan Podcast Channel. I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan Institute. And today we're talking again about the biggest story in the world, the coronavirus. In fact, dear listener, you can expect this podcast to be dominated by the virus crisis over the coming weeks and probably months. There's a hunger for knowledge about the implications and lessons of the coronavirus emergency, and our policy experts here at Grattan are well-placed to provide thoughtful and informed perspectives, so please keep listening. Today we're looking in particular at the health management aspects of the crisis, and to do so I'm joined by the best in the business, Grattan's Health Program Director, Stephen Duckett. Hello, Stephen. Hi, Paul. Stephen has just published an article explaining how the crisis has exposed flaws in the way we do primary health care in Australia. And I'll get to some of those particulars very soon. But first, Stephen, can I ask you a very general question? How well have Australia's health authorities handled this crisis so far? So I think we started well. We actually uh, implemented quarantine on uh, travellers from China early, uh, well before the WHO confirmed a pandemic. Uh, so we, we did the right things right at the start. While we were doing that, busily behind the scenes, the health departments were doing their projections, trying to think through what would happen and starting to think about uh, how they would respond in the various phases of the of the ep- epidemic. You know, the first phase being this quarantine phase, the isolation phase, the second phase being, well, what happens if it goes into the community? And the third phase is what happens is big in the community and then what do you do when it phases down? So getting that planning right. And I think, by and large, they did that reasonably well. But I think, to some extent... Uh, there were things they could have done better, which we'll probably talk about in a minute. But I think uh, we've got some you know, pretty good uh, public health leadership. And although there's been a fair amount of criticism of uh, the uh, information availability, you know, I've looked at the almost daily updates that have been sent out, and I think they're, they're pretty good. And your knowledge runs pretty deep, Stephen. In a previous incarnation, you ran the Federal Department of Health. Can I ask more specifically, you are identifying some quite fundamental problems in the way that we run primary health care in Australia. What, what are those problems? So, Paul, over the last few years, we've done a number of reports, three reports, on aspects of primary health care, and in particular primary medical care, And our first report was called Chronic Failure. And in that report, we said, look, the primary health care system is not well structured to respond to the contemporary issue, the contemporary issue of the the changing epidemiology of disease, the changing patterns of what is fronting up at general practice, and in particular, the increased prevalence of chronic disease. But now we're looking at the way the primary health care system responds to this pandemic. And what we realise is that it may not be fit for purpose for this either. And if what I've done is I've contrasted how the NHS in England responded 
and how we're responding in Australia. And if I first of all talk about the NHS response. So if you're in the NHS, you go on the website and it says, if you, have, if you think you've got the coronavirus, ring 111. Now, there's two things about that. One is a really easy number to remember, 111, the same across. And so, you know, they're set up with a helpline and an easy-to-remember number and all those things, which have been in place for years. This is not new. This is not something they started on the 1st of January when we started talking about all this. The, the second thing is their advice is do not go to the general practitioner. Do not go to the GP. And again, this is, again, something that they've been thinking about and working on for the last few years because they're saying the GP should be only for things that the GP can do. You know, we really need to use GP's time appropriately. And so they've put in place a whole lot of other things, again, well before coronavirus. But if I use an example of the coronavirus, a week or so ago, they set up drive-through clinics for people suspected of having coronavirus where a nurse does the swabbing. You know, a nurse actually uh, is the person you interact with. They being the English that under the, the NHS. The English NHS or rather the so-called community trusts. So a nurse-led response, a drive-through response, which has, is exactly what we should be doing. So then you say, well, that's what they're doing in England. What are we doing here? Well, here, if you look at the media, it's covered by GPs saying, oh, we haven't got the right equipment. Oh, we haven't been told enough information. And in very, very, very GP-centric response. And if you look at what the, the advice is, it's about go to your GP or ring up your GP. So it's symptomatic of a primary healthcare system which is very GP-centric. So we have a GP-centric system, uh, whereas in the UK they're, they're saying, well, do you really need, is it a really good idea for you to hop on the bus and go to your GP or is, are there other ways of doing it? So our first clinic, uh, our first drive-through clinic was set up in Adelaide on the 10th of March. Their first clinic was set up in London on the 4th of March. So in a rapidly moving uh, pandemic, they're ahead of us by at least a week. So, so that's, uh, I think, a symptom that, that we're not using uh, telehealth or we're not using the contemporary IT that's available and we're not using the full range of workforce available and we're not thinking about innovative solutions like drive-through clinics and we're still thinking very much of physical fabric. So we have set up specialist uh, COVID-19 coronavirus clinics and you see papers, pictures in the paper both in Western Australia and in Melbourne of people standing in line outside these clinics and you think, well, if they've got it, if someone in that, in that long line hasn't got it, they'll have it by the time they get to the front of the queue. And so you think, wow, you know, is this a stupid idea or not? So we, we, you know, the, 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 the response, the system, the health system response, not the public health response, the health system response is exposing these weaknesses in the system. So Australia has this very GP-centric system of primary care. England doesn't. You're suggesting the way England does it is better. Why has Australia still got this 1950s-style GP-dominated primary health care system? 
I think there are a number of reasons for that. I think one of the reasons is the way we fund the health system. So general practice, in the main, gets its money from the Commonwealth on a fee-for-service basis. So the, the general practitioner gets rewarded for seeing more patients. They get rewarded for an interaction with the GP in the room, in the main. Whereas in... And so the natural incentive is... The GP, we want to see these clinic, these patients and touch them because that's how we get paid. And it's only in the last day, only the 11th, I think, of March, that the Commonwealth has said, oh, you can have a telehealth consultation. So instead of you actually having to be there in the same room, you can do it over the phone. Whereas in England, in the main, the GPs get rewarded essentially on a contract, essentially based uh, in large part, anyway, on the number of people they have on their so-called list, the, the number of people they're looking after holistically. And this has a number of benefits in the chronic disease space, but in the, in the, in the case of a pandemic, there's the, the GP says, well, you know, I get paid to look after the number of people on my list. I'm quite happy for a nurse to do this if a nurse can do it. I'm happy for a pharmacist to do this if a pharmacist can do it. I don't need to do the taking of the test, you know, the taking of the swab or whatever, uh, that, even the taking of the history, that someone else can actually ask the question, have you been to China in the last two weeks? So, you know, the, it's a very different funding system It's uh, that in Australia rewards the GP actually seeing people and in England it's more a holistic payment. The second thing is, that, and related to that, is if a nurse does it, they may not get paid, the the, the provider may not get paid for it. But again, if the state government were to set up a drive-through clinic staffed by nurses, they, you know, this can't be billed by Medicare, so how does the state government put up front the money? Now, again, in the last week or so, the Commonwealth government has said, we'll pay half of that clinic. Well, previously, the Commonwealth government was paying the whole cost of a GP. They're now paying half the cost of a nurse drive-through clinic, good deal for the Commonwealth, but is this the right way? So there's a bit of Commonwealth state uh, issues in all of that and a, and a big bit of the funding system is just not fit for purpose for this sort of, this sort of uh, situation. So you've explained why the funding system of GPs in Australia is not fit for purpose generally but exposed even more so during a crisis such as this. Here's my question, Stephen. Why hasn't the funding system changed? What are the impediments? So, so Paul, the, the situation is uh, there's a couple of issues. Every doctor in every country in the world thinks the way their country funds general practice is perfect and is the best in the world. So regardless of whether it's a fee-for-service or a capitation or blended system or whatever, they all think it's perfect. And, and, and Australia is no exception. The, the GPs think, oh, look, you know, if you don't have fee-for-service, the sky is going to fall in and, you know, everybody's going to die and blah, 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 blah. But if you think about it, uh, the, the issue is if you move from where you are now to any other system, there's going to be winners and losers. And even if you say we're going to spend exactly the same amount of money to the cent that we're spending on general practice, Moving from a 
fee-for-service system which rewards very, very short consultations to a system that rewards something else, by definition, will mean some doctors will get some practices will get more and some practices will get less. The ones who will get more will say, thank you very much, that's very nice, I'll go out to a nice restaurant and enjoy myself and you'll never hear from them again. The ones who are going to lose money will say, this is the end of civilization as we know it, this is terrible, where it's all the sky's going to fall in and so on. So the, the people who will lose will be highly vocal, mobilise their patients to say the sky's going to fall in and the people who are benefiting will not be as vocal. But so we've, the, the politics of ever changing um, income arrangements for any health professional are always very tricky indeed. So the politics are very tricky, but are you despondent about this matter or do you have some optimism that over time Australia will do this more sensibly to the benefit of patients? Yes. Well, I'm not as despondent as all of that because in a sense we know the general practice in this country is probably underfunded. We're probably not putting enough money into general practice. We put way too much money into some specialties. And, you know, that we, we really should be putting a bit more money into general practice. And it seems to me that we can, we can if we recognise that and say, look, over time we're going to have to, if we want to have a really strong primary healthcare system, we're going to have to put more money into it. And so the issue is how do we put that more money into it and we don't put it in in the way we're currently putting it in. And so we slowly over time shift the way uh, primary health care is funded. Okay, and you've got some particular proposals to reform the system, and I'll get to those in a minute. But just while you're here, Stephen, I want to ask you about a particular high-profile episode during this emergency, which is the Melbourne GP from Turak, as it happens, uh, the, the, the richest suburb in Melbourne. A Melbourne GP attracted all sorts of headlines because he returned from an overseas trip and, as I understand it, had a sniffly nose or was feeling slightly unwell, but nonetheless went back to work, saw patients in the normal way, indeed visited a local nursing home, and then got the test and discovered that he had coronavirus. When we heard about that, the Victorian Health Minister was furious, furious about that GP and his behaviour. What did you make of that episode, Stephen? So I think there are two issues uh, that we need to talk about. The first is the individual situation. So the individual situation is is it a doctor who had flu-like symptoms continue to work and indeed went to work in a saw patients in a nursing home now if i was the son of a resident of that nursing home would i be really comfortable about a doctor with flu-like symptoms visiting my mother or father in that uh, in that nursing home probably not because by definition they're older frailer blah 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 and so whether or not he had coronavirus was that a really sensible clinical decision for him to make. And I don't know, you know, the, the paper doesn't say how many drips were kind of coming out of his nose per minute, so I've got no idea how, how severe the symptoms were. But, you know, this is a really quite interesting, you know, I'm not sure that was the right decision. As I said, if I were the, the son of a person in that uh, nursing home, I wouldn't be really comfortable about it. How, but so you've got an individual situation, and this was an issue whether or not he had coronavirus. Obviously, if he had coronavirus... 
it's way worse. But, you know, regardless of whether he had coronavirus or not. But the systems issue is the important one. Why is it that he felt that he should put more emphasis on the patient who was in front of him booked to see him that day than the risk to that patient of his uh, transmitting the flu or, as it turns out, transmitting coronavirus? And the, the response in the paper has been, you know, absolutely he made the right decision. The system is so stretched that we cannot afford for a GP not to front up that every day. And again, this is a symptom of, a, of, a, of an interesting issue. Was every patient that that, pa- that that doctor saw, did each of those patients have to be seen by a GP? Comes back to could any of those patients have been seen by a nurse or, or did they really need to have that uh, face-to-face consultation that day? The other point is general practices, general practices are really often quite small. I don't know how many doctors are in, in the clinic that he worked in, but you know, on average there's seven or so GPs in a clinic, and which means that if one of them uh, can't come in, either the other six have to work one-sixth more each um, or they have to bring in someone who might not be available. So they're drawing on a very small pool to replace the, the GP who didn't come in. If we had nurses and more, uh, uh, more uh, other health professionals within that uh, practice, if the, if the practice structure was slightly different, then it would have been a bit more flexible and have a bit more potential to respond to a daily up and down. So, you know, one of the ways you um, measure the ability, the access to a clinic is the so-called third next available appointment. How long is it before you can see how many, how many hours or days is it before there's a space in the, in the, uh, in the diary to, to see a doctor? And so obviously that clinic must have been really working at, at, at close capacity. And so you think, again, this is a symptom of a system under stress. And the, and the answer is not more GPs working in Tarak. You know, if you, if you get on the number 58 tram going down Tarak Road... You've you've got to be, you, you're, you're at risk of being mugged by a, a doctor who wants to actually see you because there are so many GPs in Tarak. But you know you've got to say, is this the right design of a system that means it is so stretched that the uh, the GP uh, has to come in even when they may be putting their patients at risk? Okay, so it's a, that was a symptom of a system under stress. You describe a better way to operate primary health in Australia. Describe it for me here. How do we do this better, Stephen? So if I go back one step and say a pandemic is unusual, it is really a a stressful time and it is revealing those weaknesses in the system because it is under stress. But the weaknesses it is revealing are the weaknesses are there every day whether we have the pandemic or not. And if we, by and large, rule of thumb is if you if you organise a system to deal with the uh, the most disadvantaged or the or the biggest problems, you'll get it right for everybody. And so, what would a good system look like to manage chronic disease? Well, a good system to manage chronic disease would mean that you'd have multidisciplinary groups uh, with different mixes 
uh, of um, health professionals, uh, who would be there to support a person with a chronic disease as far as possible manage their own condition? So trying to actually support that, that person, support that person's family, support the carers and so on in the management of that chronic disease. And the best design of the system is not going to be the design of the system we've got now. It is not going to be a system where the general practitioners are sitting in this particular building and if you need to see a physio or a podiatrist, they say, oh, go down the street or go to this suburb or whatever and you might get lost, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, the, the, inter the system is not well integrated. Now, I'm not saying that we should actually put every health professional in one building which is 27 storeys high. But what I'm saying is there needs to be, and it might be a good idea to put more of them in the same building because, you know, rubbing shoulders with each other in an informal way might help in, in terms of relationships and referrals and all those sorts of things and dealing with uh, problems. But I am saying we need to have tight relationships so that the physio and the GP work closely together. So the physio and the podiatrist work close together. So the hospital and the GP and, and so on. So we need to be building either putting people together in the same location, sometimes in the same location like community health centres, but at least to have some sort of network arrangements that they are all signed up to work together. They all know each other and they all uh, have some sort of accountability to each other and we just don't have that now. A better health system for the next pandemic, perhaps. Thank and you, Stephen. A, and a better health system, Paul, for the just dealing with the problems we've got now. Thank you so much, Stephen, for your insights and your expertise today. And thank you to you, our listeners. If you would like to read Stephen's latest article on coronavirus, or indeed any of Grattan's reports and articles on the virus and a whole lot more besides go to our website, grattan.edu.au. It's all there, live and free. And you can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news and events by following us on Twitter, at Grattan Inst, or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you found this podcast valuable, then please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes or Spotify and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening. <laughs>